Uh, welcome back. Uh, our second paper today is The French Gold Sink and the Great Depression by Douglas Irwin from Dartmouth University. You should be pointed out that Dartmouth is a college and Absolutely. still remains one, but uh, oh, sorry. there's a lot of people back there. Uh, so <laughs> the financial crisis and uh, the recent Great Recession have uh, triggered a lot of interest in the Great Depression. And 80 years later, we're still writing papers on the Great Depression, so I think 80 years later, we'll probably, 80 years from now, we'll still see papers on uh, TARP and TAF and what have you. Um, I wrote this paper because I, there, in looking at the literature on the Great Depression, there was something that just didn't quite add up to me. And I'll sort of mention as we get to that point what that, something that didn't add up. But let me just say there's been a, a great literature on the uh, um, uh, Great Depression. Uh, and it, it's uh, basically from the 1980s and 1990s. Bernanke, Eichengreen, Tam, and a bunch of others have linked the Great Depression with the, great, uh, gold, with the gold standard. And there's sort of two key observations that summarizes uh, why the two are linked. First of all, countries that were not on the gold standard missed the Great Depression. So Spain, which is desperately trying to get back on the gold standard, was a little slow. They missed it. But they had a fiat currency system. They didn't have the Great Depression. They didn't have a great deflation or a, any big decline in industrial production. Um, China was on a silver standard, also missed the Great Depression. So there are very few observations, because most countries were on the gold standard. But those that were not on missed the big downturn. And second of all, those countries that were on didn't begin to recover until they got off. And so we have a lot of uh, temporal variation on this. Uh, Australia in 1929, Great Britain in 1931, the US in 1933, France in 1936, uh, and what have you. And that sort of marks the turning point in terms of their recovery. Uh, and so uh, these, there's been a lot of literature on this. We sort of know this as sort of uh, the two are very much linked. But the question is, why? What is it? What was it about the gold standard that led to this uh, you know, great catastrophe in the early 1930s? And uh, if you want to, you could say there's sort of this blame America first crowd that says, uh, well, we caused it. Uh, the Fed caused it. Uh, and it's because we weren't playing by the rules. The Fed wasn't playing by the rules. So the US begins to tighten monetary policy in 1928, prick the stock market bubble. We begin to attract gold from the rest of the world. Uh, but we sterilize these gold inflows. So we don't pursue a more expansionary policy as a result of this because we have more gold, gold coming in. Uh, but we're draining uh, reserves from other countries. Uh, so the net effect was deflationary. And we get this downward uh, spiral in prices. And a lot of people have, have written on this. Now, I know that, of course, if the US sneezes, Europe catches a cold. But that was quite a sneeze. Or it seemed like it, it must have been quite a sneeze to cause this great catastrophe in the early 1930s. And so that's where I sort of was scratching my head. How could this sort of relatively modest, even if it was a severe tightening by the Fed, cause this utter world calamity? Well, it turns out the magnitude of the shock was much greater than just what the Fed was doing. Uh, France was doing something very much similar. Uh, and uh, this is something that's sort of under the radar screen of even a lot of economic historians, but uh, particularly people who sort of know a little bit about the Great Depression, but not uh, all the features that were behind it. But there is a, a sort of, a, as I said, under the radar uh, screen literature on France's role during the Great Depression. And even Milton Friedman at numerous times said that if he was going to do the monetary history again with Anna Schwartz or come out with a second edition, they would pay more attention to France. Uh, and uh, they, they says that they understood the role of France in the Great Contraction. There are also two books that I would highlight for you, one by Clark Johnson. Um, and I have a couple quotes here, uh, at least one quote from his book that says, while the US did little to hinder the decline in world prices, French policy can be charged with directly causing it. And then Kenneth Moray, a historian who's written a lot on French monetary policy in the interwar period, says that uh, the magnitude and timing of the French gold absorption between mid-28 and 1930 imposed a greater constraint on systemic monetary contraction than the United States. Now, there's no quantitative evidence in these works, 
but they're certainly highlighting that uh, something's going on in France that deserves our attention. So when we look for some sort of, what's the quantitative evidence that we have that uh, in terms of the significance of uh, France's absorption of gold during this period, um, there really isn't all that much. So Barry Eckengreen has a paper where he talks about uh, gold uh, pardon me, reserve holdings by central banks at this time, finds that the US and France were both outliers uh, to a substantial degree, and sort of implies that if they hadn't done this, there would have been more gold left over for other countries, but doesn't really pursue it. There's a paper by Bernanke and Mihoff, which wasn't uh, actually ever published except in Bernanke's sort of collected papers, essays on the Great Depression. But unfortunately, I think the role of France is uh, uh, completely misstated there. Uh, it assumes that France is on a gold exchange standard and counts as a part of its reserves for an exchange, but that just wasn't the case. And so their conclusions, as I note in the paper, I think are, are erroneous. I'd say this paper is most clo closely associated with a paper by Scott Sumner, um, which doesn't really sort of bring out and highlight the role of France, but also looks at the role of uh, uh, different countries' central bank reserves of gold and the impact on the world price levels. So before uh, pursuing uh, this a little bit further and trying to get at sort of the quantitative magnitude of what France was doing in comparison to the United States, I just want to take a quick detour and ask the Queen's question. So the Queen visited LSE in 2008 or 2009 to open a building and asked some of the economists there who were talking about the financial crisis, why didn't anyone see this coming? So I'm sort of curious too, why didn't, who saw the Great Depression coming? Um, it wasn't John Maynard Keynes, and it actually wasn't, wasn't unfortunately Friedrich Hayek, uh, who, after whom this auditorium is named. Um, Keynes, for example, uh, after the stock market crash in October of 29, said this is actually good news, because finally we got this sort of behind us, we knew there was this bubble, and now we can sort of, uh, you know, Europe can uh, continue to march forward. And uh, um, Hayek sort of ex post uh, sort of worried, uh, had you know, reasons for why we had the depression, but uh, I can get into this a little bit later. I want to highlight another uh, sort of uh, <coughs> underappreciated economist, Gustav Kassel of the period. Uh, this is actually a New York Times report of lectures he gave at Columbia University in May of 1928, but actually uh, back when the days when the New York Times actually reported what economists were saying, I guess. But Kassel uh, <laughs> um, was, uh, throughout the 1920s, uh, consistently saying that there's a great danger built into the gold standard the way it was set up in the interwar period. And just to quote from this Columbia lecture, uh, but he was saying this many years earlier as well, um, that the great problem before us is how to meet the growing scarcity of gold, which threatens the world both from increased demand and from diminished supply. We have to solve this by restricting the monetary demand for gold. Only if we succeed, succeed in doing this can we hope to prevent a permanent fall of the general price level and a prolonged worldwide depression, which would inevitably be connected with such a fall in prices. And he continued, he talked about the uh, need for international cooperation to uh, bring this about. And he said, um, we'll have to think about how important this cooperation is if we think about the alternative. The alternative would be a general and ruthless competition for gold and consequent continual rise in the value of gold and a corresponding worldwide economic depression for an unlimited future. And he talks about uh, sort of the Irving Fisher effect that uh, deflation will be bad for uh, the payment of debts and solvency. And he says, we must remember that the great part of the world that would have to suffer from such a development has a very powerful weapon in its defense. This weapon is simply the abolition of gold as a monetary standard. So he predicted exactly what was going to happen as countries were rejoining the gold standard in the interwar period, and also said, if this leads to pressures that I identify, it'll lead to the abolition of gold. So what was he talking about, and then how, how does France fit into this? So the price level under a gold standard is, you know, the supply and demand for gold will determine the relative price of gold. But if there's some, for some reason, increase in demand for gold for uh, central bank demand or monetary demand or what have you, um, 
the price of gold is fixed in nominal terms. That's the, the point of the gold standard. And so uh, the price of gold can't go up with the increase in demand. Instead, the price of other goods has to fall. You're going to have deflation. And so that's why he said we have to keep the supply of gold increasing in match in, in concert with the increase in demand so we can keep this relative price uh, very stable. So here's sort of the rise of number of countries going on the gold standard, the increasing monetary demand for gold by central banks in the late 1920s, particularly after Britain rejoins in 1925. And then, of course, as the deflationary problems develop, everyone goes off the gold standard by 1936, um, end of 1936. So how does uh, uh, France fit into this picture here? Well, Gustav Kassel was worried about two things. He said the supply of gold is not going to keep up with the demand for gold because we're running out of gold. It's going to become increasingly difficult to mine. And as countries rejoin the gold standard, there's going to be a huge demand for gold on the part of central banks. Well, who's half wrong, uh, or half right? Uh, World gold supplies actually did not fall off the way he anticipated. Um, they did dip in the early 1920s, but uh, increased production uh, occurred by the mid-1920s. And from the mid-1920s through the 1930s, the world supply of gold was growing about 3 4% a year, which is sort of what uh, Kassel thought was sufficient to keep the price level at a stable level. And so we can see this here. World gold reserves are increasing over this period. Now, one thing you, that doesn't sort of really stand out here is the distribution of these. Uh, and you might notice the red bar is getting pretty big. And so the next picture is one of two pictures, maybe three, that I think really makes the paper. So when I think of this picture, I think of Sesame Street <coughs> and the song on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. Can you pick it? Do you know? And I won't try to sing that, but one of these things doesn't look like the other. And I think the outlier here is clearly France, which in 1926 finally stabilized the franc at uh, an undervalued rate. Uh, gold started flowing in. And uh, a country that was uh, relatively uh, small in terms of the G7 at this period, by 1932, had uh, more than 25% of world gold reserves, increasing from 7% in 1926. And so this is a pretty startling development. They're sort of peeling away from the UK, Germany, other continental powers, um, and almost approaching the level of gold reserves that the US had in 1932. So this is a huge change in the international distribution of reserves. And in fact, you can sort of see the US tightening here in 1928. So you can see US gold reserves as a share of world gold is going down, uh, 26, 27, 28. And it stabilizes, it goes up a little bit. That's the Fed tightening in 28, supposedly the major cause of the Great Depression. But on the backdrop of this is, of course, is what's going on in France, a huge amount of gold going into France. Let's think about the systemic implications of this. So let's just look at uh, some numbers about how much gold there is and where it's going. So as I mentioned, there was not so much a problem on the supply side. So what I've highlighted here in red is just the increase in uh, total world gold stock, going up 5 3 4% a year or so. That's a, a modest expansion, enough to keep relative prices stable. Um, over this entire period, the world stock of monetary gold goes up by 24%. Now, 1928 was not a bad year in the world economy. Uh, things were, um, you know, Britain, of course, of course, had its own difficulties, but the rest of the world continued to grow. Industrial production was expanding. Uh, the U.S. gave up the equivalent of 2% of the world's monetary gold stock. So we were exporting gold. We were lending to Europe and what have you. France absorbed 3% of the world's gold stock, but there was enough left over for the rest of the world to accumulate or at least have an additional 4% of the world's gold stock. Well, that's when things begin to change. In 1928, uh, the U.S. goes from being a gold exporter to a gold importer. And in 1929, 1930, we can see the U.S. now has shifted, is now uh, gaining 2 to 3% a year of the world's gold stock. France continues to expand its share, accumulating 4 to 5% of the world's gold stock. 
which, you know, things add up. The rest of the world has lost in 1929, 3% of the world's gold stock, 2% in 1930. And so we have three crucial years here, 1929, 1930, 1931, when rest of world gold reserves decline on an absolute basis. And this is a share of world reserves. So when we take this as being a share of the rest of the world's reserves, you have to more than double those numbers because the US and France count for about half world gold reserves. So this is a big reduction uh, in uh, terms of uh, the, the monetary gold that the other countries have if they want to remain on the gold standard. And when we look at this entire period from 28 to 1932, world gold stock goes up 24%. Basically, it all goes to France. Um, zero in the rest of the world, only a little bit to the United States. And it was basically this trend that uh, prompted John Maynard Keynes to very bitterly write, when the last bar of gold is safely deposited in the vaults of the Bank of France, that's the perfect time for German chemists to announce they've invented alchemy. Um, and so, uh, you know, obviously the British were very worried about this flow of gold uh, away from Britain towards France and other countries. Now, this sh actually shouldn't be a problem if countries were adhering to the rules of the gold standard, because as the US and France were gaining gold, they should be expanding their money supplies, inflating, the rest of the world would be deflating, the human price specie flow mechanism works, but unfortunately, both the United States and France were interrupting that mechanism. And we know that because of the cover ratios which is how much gold there is backing uh, the liabilities of the central bank. The cover ratios were increasing for the US and France in 1928, 29, 1930, um, meaning that they're holding the gold but not completely monetizing it. If you are completely monetizing your gold inflows, it should be constant at whatever uh, ratio you have. By statute, France had to have a cover ratio of 35%, but by 1932, they'd exceeded their legal cover uh, and they're almost up to an 80% cover ratio. And once again, there, so there's this systematic bias. It's a lower bound in terms of the cover ratio. You're not allowed to go below that, but it's unbounded from above. You can go up above and no one's going to penalize you. Once again, you can see the Fed tightening here with the cover ratio going up in 1929, 1930, but then the US begins to lose gold and export gold starting in 1931. But once again, France is sort of one of these things is not like the others. It looks like France once again. Here's a cartoon that completely summarizes the entire paper. You don't have to read the paper, you just have to understand this cartoon. This is from David Lowe in the Evening Standard. And what it is, it's, uh, notice here it says, the world's fast vanishing gold supply. And it has Britain, Germany, and a bunch of other countries trying to swim in this pool that's shrinking. And there's this suction pipe that's pulling out gold from the world, and where's it going? Into the USA reservoir and the French reservoir. Now, most of the gold standard literature in the 1980s and 90s focused on that USA reservoir, how the US is sterilizing gold inflows, but notice the French reservoir in this cartoon seems just as big as the US. And that sort of exactly summarizes what's going on. It's the US and France sort of pulling gold away from the rest of the world. It's okay to pull it away, but if they're not putting it back into the system, they're not monetizing it. Uh, the cover ratios are going up. Uh, and so that's David Lowe in the Evening Standard. So the question is, what are some of the implications of this? So, one question we can ask is, why did France get all this gold, and why did they sit on it? Why did they not monetize it? Um, and the paper goes into some of the reasons for this. I'll give you a, a very brief summary. First of all, when France went back on the gold standard in 1926, as I mentioned, they undervalued the franc. So Britain's problem in 1925, when they went back on, is they overvalued the pound and had uh, difficulties that uh, Keynes had written about at the time. But France went back at an undervalued rate, so they had a balance of trade surplus. Gold was coming in. Um, 
Once again, that should reverse itself. Or there should be some sort of correcting equilibrium uh, tendencies if you're monetizing it. Um, but they didn't monetize the gold inflows. And in particular, when they were intervening in foreign exchange markets to prevent the rise in the appreciation of the franc, they're accumulating foreign exchange, which they then decide to exchange for gold. They didn't want to hold the foreign exchange. They didn't want to be on this uh, gold exchange standard. So here's just an indication of how uh, gold on the bottom here is going up. Um, the line between the foreign exchange and uh, gold and the gold line are, are squeezed, coming together because they're getting rid of their foreign exchange, exchanging it for gold. But M2 is just flat. It's not move, moving at all. And so the question is why. Unlike the United States, where the Fed was deliberately sterilizing, that is taking open market operations to offset the impact of gold inflows and outflows on the monetary base, France was not sterilizing in that sense. So it's almost uh, earlier drafts of this paper implied that France was deliberately doing this. And the more you get into it, the more you realize that they actually weren't deliberately trying to do something. But uh, there's something called, what uh, more neutrally can be called, if I can get this moved to the next slide, the neutralization of French gold inflows. Why was it being neutralized? Well, first of all, under the Matre Law of 1928, which was sort of backstopping the stabilization, uh, the Bank of France couldn't conduct open market operations. So they, if they want to have a more expansionary monetary policy, their hands were tied. They really couldn't do it. Second of all, fiscal policy is very important here, too. The, with the stabilization, uh, the, the French government was able to repay some advances from the Bank of France. Uh, that is, and they were draining currency from the system to do that, and these were sitting as idle balances in the Bank of France. And thirdly, uh, the French <coughs> banking system uh, was very inefficient. Uh, a lot of French uh, commercial banks were actually competing with the, the Bank of France in terms of uh, discounting and other, providing other services. Um, and they were accommodating the d demand for francs because uh, the French economy was being under-monetized because of the uh, fiscal policy to some extent uh, by withdrawing foreign balances, exchanging gold uh, domestically with the Bank of France. And so uh, th there's a number of reasons why um, the gold was not being translated into uh, a more expansionary monetary stance. So what's going to be the contribution of this uh, paper? Um, I think one contribution is just simply highlighting the French role, which, I, as I mentioned, is sort of under the radar screen for many people uh, thinking about the Great Depression. But I want to go a little bit further and just do some very simple calculations about what was the impact of this um, sort of on uh, reserves in the rest of the world, on the world's monetary gold stock, and then on the world price level. So the first simple counterfactual I'll do is to ask the question, how much of the world's uh, gold stock was reduced, or how much was being monetized? How much of the world's gold stock was uh, uh, not being monetized as a result of the US and France exceeding their 1928 cover ratios? So the benchmark that I'm going to take is because the world economy was actually performing relatively well in 1928, take 1928 as a benchmark. Say those cover ratios, whatever they are, they're fine. But moving forward, 1929, 30, 31, how much gold would have been freed up if they just kept the cover ratios constant, and they didn't allow those cover ratios to go up. And so you get a very simple diagram like this. So the blue line is the world's monetary gold stock, which, as I showed you before, is growing at 3 or 4% a year throughout this period. No problem. But the world's effective gold stock actually fell in 1929, uh, was level in 1930. Um, and actually, 31 is a little bit misleading here for reasons I'll get into in a moment. It seems to be going up. But there's uh, the gap between the actual reserves and the effect of monetized reserves. Uh, there's a big uh, effect right in the period when we're beginning to go into the Great Depression, 29-30. So there's actually an 11% reduction uh, in the world's effective gold stock as a result of the sterilization or neutralization of gold reserves by the US and France. 
So there's actually two and, and a half, uh, two and three quarters years of extreme monetary stringency. And we can see that a little bit more deliberately when we look at the monthly data, um, and, uh, which is this right here. Uh, and so the, the, now I'm going to try to apportion this out between France and the U.S. And so, you know, who could we blame more for uh, the problems of this period? So we can see in late 1928, um, actually the U.S. and France, particularly the U.S., uh, were still sort of had an expansionary stance. We're expanding uh, uh, or giving up reserves to the rest of the world. But things begin to turn when the gold flows begin to come into the United States in uh, uh, early 1929. And we can see by mid-1929, uh, the number here is very significant, very important. By mid-1929, effectively 4% of the world's monetary gold stock has been demonetized and absorbed by the France and United States. So that's a very quick turnaround. So the scale here is, is very big, and the turnaround is very important. So in early 1929, big monetary contraction uh, being imposed on the rest of the world. Now, I think someone on this panel has written about seasonality of interest rates in the Fed. So you can see sort of in late 1929, things ease off uh, because the Fed's a little bit more expansionary, uh, fall crops and, and the agricultural economy and what have you. But then again, starting in early 1930, uh, the monetary tightness uh, actually is, is much bigger. By mid-1930, 10% of world's gold reserves are being sunk in France and the United States, uh, not being monetized, hence the term uh, French gold sink. Once again, you see the seasonality. Okay, By the end of 1930, it eases off a little bit. 32, uh, uh, pardon me, 1931, even bigger. Uh, by then, by the, the beginning of the third quarter, 14% uh, is, is being held uh, by France and the United States here, and, and the cover ratios are expanding. Now, of course, 1931, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but that's when the financial crisis hits, credit Anstalt, uh, German problems, uh, uh, Central Europe, and what have you, speculative attack on the British pound uh, in uh, August and September. So you can see things reverse very quickly. So that's why the year numbers, which are always December numbers, for 1931 will be a little bit odd, but through most of 1931, huge monetary stringency being imposed on the rest of the world. By the end of the uh, year, you can sort of see things changing there a bit. So how do we translate these monthly numbers into something uh, we can get a little bit more of a handle on? So here's sort of the monthly averages uh, for 1929-30 and then the first three quarters of 1931, sort of uh, before the financial crisis uh, hits uh, Britain and, and the US. Britain, of course, goes off the gold standard um, once again. Little about, a little less than 4% uh, world gold, uh, effective reduction in world gold stock in 1929, 10% uh, in 1930. Um, by the second or third quarter of 1931, it's up to 12%. But interestingly, the proportions are roughly the same across these three periods. That is, it's a 60-40 breakdown. 60% United States, 40% France. So if we think back to that David Lowe cartoon, uh, the tank should be of different size. U.S. is a little bit bigger, 60%, 40% for France. When we look at it in terms of levels, this is what we see. And here's, again, we see the seasonality, um, actual gold reserves going up. But the effective ones, basically flat downward trend, except for the, the uh, cyclical element of, of the Fed. Um, and then, of course, you can see what happens in late 1931 when the U.S. Uh, rapidly loses a lot of gold. Um, uh, the two thing, things really change. So that's sort of the first counterfactual, just trying to get a benchmark of you know, who is the bigger absorber of gold during this period and, and violating the cover ratios of 1928. So the second question is, well, what was the impact on the price level? Um, well, it's not a coincidence, if you sort of buy the story so far, that if monetary stringency is being imposed on the rest of the world starting in early 1929, 
that maybe prices should start falling sometime in 1929. And of course, lo and behold, let's, if we look at uh, wholesale prices in 19, uh, during this period, they're basically flat in 26, 27, 28. Britain has a little bit more of a deflation than the other countries. But by mid-1929, around the world, wholesale prices begin to tank. And they continue uh, through 1931. Uh, as you see, Britain is a little bit off there, but e even into 1932. So, um, this sort of holds together in terms of the timing of when France and the United States begin uh, their gold accumulation. Now, of course, if countries are holding this gold, not monetizing it, we'd expect precisely this deflationary effect. So uh, I'll invoke two uh, great monetary economists of the past uh, to justify that statement. One is David Hume, who said, if the coin be locked up in chests, it is the same thing with regard to prices as if it were annihilated. And then the second one is uh, Milton Friedman, who uh, didn't quite say this, but I, I'm taking liberties here, deflation is always and everywhere a monetary <coughs> phenomenon. So what is the impact of this sort of holding of gold uh, by uh, France and the United States on the price level? So I do a very simple uh, forecast, um, actually one very similar to ones Gustav Kassel did. He didn't do regressions, but he did sort of, I guess what Jeffrey Williamson would call ocular regressions, that is sort of looking at patterns in the data and backing out uh, coefficients. But here we can estimate what is the impact of uh, changes in the world gold stock on the world price level, um, controlling for whatever data we can uh, have during this period. One question that comes up is whether uh, G is exogenous, whether you can just take gold as being exogenous or is it dependent on what the price of gold is. And I'll invoke some other work that's being done, been done by economic historians to say that, yes, in fact, the timing and the magnitude of gold discoveries and the expansion of the gold supply is independent of the price level. It has to do with technological innovations, uh, you know, geographic uh, discoveries and things of that sort. So G will take as exogenous, and uh, what we will get, and uh, actually Bob Barsky were running these regressions in his office not too many weeks ago, and I've been rerunning things. Uh, you get a coefficient uh, about 0.9. Actually, you would think it would be about 1, uh, so uh, that's sort of satisfying. But then we can run this uh, basic, based on uh, gold uh, uh, reserves, either starting in 1870 with the classical gold standard or even going back to 1840, and uh, things fit fairly well. Uh, explain the late 19th century, early 20th century, a dummy variable here for World War I when, of course, countries were off the gold standard, so you wouldn't expect a link between gold reserves and the prices. Another dummy variable for going back on. Now, there, unfortunately, there are too few observations in the interwar period uh, when countries are on the gold standard to see what hap is happening with prices. So a lot of this is predicated on what would we have expected the world price level to behave uh, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, had the same relationship between gold and prices that we observed in the late 19th century held during that interwar period. And so you can see the forecast right there is that, not too surprisingly, because the world gold stock was growing about 3 or 4% a year, which is sort of the minimum you'd need to maintain stable prices, if you look at the forecast there, the price level should have been relatively stable in late, 1920, late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, but of course, what happens to the actual price level? Well, it falls quite a bit there. It falls 34%. So that's where, I taking the uh, uh, econometric estimates I have, putting in the effective gold stock, uh, which we saw declined uh, by about, um, well, it was relatively flat during this period, what percent of that price decline can we explain? And this is what we get. So the key finding is that prices actually fell 34% between 1929 and 1933. Uh, just looking at the, the changes in the effect of gold stock, uh, using that regression, we can explain about 40%, 14 percentage points of that decline. 
Now, of course, there's an endogenous process here, so uh, even though I can't, strictly speaking, explain uh, the remaining 60 percent, um, a lot of this is maybe an endogenous reaction to the uh, deflation that uh, is occurring. So, for example, you know, the money multiplier is going to decline. You're going to get uh, monetary stringency in, in, in other forms. And so indirectly, I won't say how much, but I think we could account for more uh, indirectly once you start this deflationary spiral. Now, uh, the title of the paper actually is uh, And the Great France and the Great Deflation, because I'm not going to talk about real output or, or uh, things of that sort. But I will note that there actually is a literature on the link between deflation and depression, uh, actually from the early uh, 2000s when that was a concern uh, in Japan and elsewhere. Uh, and this is from a paper by Akison Kehoe, just noting that uh, the Great Depression is actually one period where we do see a, a relatively uh, strong correlation between deflation and depression of real output. Um, whereas in the late 19th century, when there was deflation, uh, there wasn't necessarily a problem with, uh, in terms of uh, uh, real output declines. So what do I take away from this uh, exercise? One is that we have to modify our standard view of the Great Depression. It wasn't just sort of the U.S. triggering this and the U.S. acting alone, that uh, the monetary shock coming from the United States, while great, was magnified because France was doing something very similar. In fact, it's the Fed tightening in 28-29 that occurs with the backdrop of what's going on in France that really makes this a big monetary shock to the world economy. So simply recognizing that it wasn't just the Fed, but the Bank of France, or France uh, more uh, generally, uh, was important to this process uh, is, uh, I think, a, a contribution. 60-40 is roughly the percent uh, proportion that I would, uh, would uh, stay is reasonable here. And the second point would be that uh, had this not been occurring, had the countries not been violating the rules of the gold standard, had they been keeping their uh, cover ratios relatively fixed, uh, we wouldn't have seen a deflation. There was no inherent necessary reason for there to have been a deflation during this period. Monetary gold stocks were expanding, and that's precisely because these rules were being violated that uh, uh, the world economy hit this uh, uh, huge uh, uh, pothole, if you will. And once again, it just revisiting this issue just makes you think about uh, you know, the cost of these policies. Um, and so here I'll, I'll quote from uh, Robert Mundell's uh, Nobel Prize address, where he simply says, had the price of gold been raised during this period, or major central banks pursued uh, policies of price stability instead of adhering to the gold standard, there would have been no Great Depression, no Nazi Revolution, no World War II. I won't go quite that far and say that had France had different policies, we wouldn't have World War II, but it does get you thinking about the broad implications of this massive policy failure in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. First discussant is Charlie Calamiris from Columbia University. Thanks. Uh, this is a very clearly written and interesting paper. Um, the main novelty, I think, of this paper is coming to grips with the specific contribution of the French quantitatively and sort of laying out this argument for the 40-60 uh, breakdown. And I do want to emphasize, uh, I think that's really interesting, but I, I'm going to uh, talk about the part of the paper that's not so new, the factual part, which is an explanation for why this happened. And the reason I want to focus on that, which is uh, all very well uh, trod territory, is that I think that this is really the important question for current public policy. 
If, if the gold standard disaster of the French was just a stupid mistake that economists can understand, then that means that the gold standard isn't such a dangerous thing. We are smart enough to not do what the French did. And that's exactly why you know, Bob Mundell tell, talks about uh, these counterfactuals in the slide that you had. Well, if we had just done this. And of course, remember, Bob Mundell is the father of the euro. <laughs> in other words, mechanical economic thinking about what was, what, if only we had done this, is not really relevant. What is relevant is asking whether this collapse that happened as a result of these policies was part of some kind of a politically driven mechanism that was in some sense unavoidable. And that's what I'm going to tell you. Political and also some, with some microeconomic foundations. In other words, if you set up a global gold standard, one of the inherent risks, unavoidable inherent risks of doing that is this. Being a smart economist and, and, and understanding everything that Bob Mundell understands and we understand will not stop it. That is an important message because the, the problem of the gold standard wasn't that they didn't know about neutralization, as they called it in France, or sterilization. That wasn't it. They knew all about it. But the nature of the institutional history of France required it to follow this path. That is very important to understand because what it tells you is if you set this thing up again, it's going to do it again, no matter how much people know. In other words, political economy trumps economic thinking as a way to think about designing regimes. And so this, I think, is a huge message that we don't want to get lost. And you can see that, not, I'm not blaming Doug for it, but his last slide, sort of, oh, well, you know, Mundell, of course we could have just done different. Now we're smarter and we can set up things like the euro, where we won't make these mistakes. All right, so let's go through some of the basic facts and try to you know, come to grips with why this happened, which is the central point I'm trying to make. So first of all, uh, the basic story is very well known. Uh, again, I think the quantification is the real contribution of this paper. Barry Eichengreen was a visitor, as Bob Hull may remember, to the Stanford Economics Department in the early 1980s. And so as a graduate student studying monetary and banking history, I got to learn all about this in the early 1980s, because Barry Eichengreen wrote about a half dozen papers on this topic, about France in particular and why it happened, from about 1982 to 1992, and then made it an important part of his book, Golden Fetters. So the French... Uh, experienced these huge inflows that, that Doug is documenting. Um, and there was not sufficient high-powered money expansion by the central bank in the, in the parlance of modern monetary economics uh, to avoid the deflationary contribution of that. And in this sense, France did not play by what has been called sometimes the rules of the game, which is when you get a gold inflow, you expand 
the main mechanism for understanding this, but only one of them, was the increase in the cover ratio, that is the uh, ratio of uh, gold to the liabilities of the, of the uh, central bank, which rose from 40% to 80%, as Doug documents. But there's another one, which is another contributor, was that the French money multiplier was actually falling during this period. And that's a clue. We, we want to try to understand that a little bit. What, the French money multiplier was also falling. And that made matters worse. That, in other words, uh, the higher reserve to deposit ratio for the banks indicates that the French should have expanded high-powered money growth even more than by the amount that would have been uh, consistent with not increasing the cover ratio. If they really wanted to avoid the deflationary consequences, they would have had to not only keep the cover ratio constant, but they would have had to actually increase by even more. And, of course, France fared better than others uh, because France was the place where all the gold was going, and uh, it did this very unneighborly thing. And you've already seen that graph. But you haven't seen this graph. This is from a Barry Eichen Green paper in 1992. And... You can see that the history of the Great Depression is largely a growth history of when you get off the gold standard. So uh, Japan leaves first, Britain leaves next, Germany leaves next, the U.S. leaves next, and France stays on for a long time. And But you can see early on, let's see if I can figure this out. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Can you see anything there? Okay. So, over here, you can see that France is experiencing a relatively favorable period uh, experiencing growth from 29 to 31 because they're the place where the gold is flowing in. But then uh, they're experiencing a relatively unfavorable one because they are the ones who stay on the gold standard the longest. Okay, so now we get into the story, well, the, the dumb French, right? So they set their, what were their mistakes? Well, they set the exchange rate badly in 1926 um, and 28. And if they hadn't set it so badly, uh, they would have avoided some of the problem. And then they didn't respond to the inflows uh, properly. If they had, they would have stopped the gold inflowing in. That's the whole uh, idea of the rules of the game, that if you expand, if you expand the money supply rapidly in response to the gold inflows, the gold inflows will stop. That's the idea. But they didn't do that. And so because of their, what was their motivation? Were they self-interested, protectionist? Were they trying to mercantilistically raise their export growth? Sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like what people say about China. We'll come back to that. Um, now, there's another view. The alternative view is that France was a place that had just experienced some horrible institutional shocks in the early 1920s that made France an institutionally backward, weak environment that, was, that became, as a consequence of that, politically constrained. France's fiscal, monetary, and banking institutions were very damaged their credibility and was very damaged in the 20s, and that led to political changes that necessarily constrained what happened, what the French monetary authorities and banks and government 
were doing. That's my point, right? That, that this was not just bad thinking, that they didn't understand what they were doing. The French political will was to impose constraints as a result of a historical experience which had consequences, and that that will happen again. That is a predictable political sequence of events. Okay, so what, what, was the, what were these? Uh, so the, contrary to some views, Poincaré's uh, return in 1926 does not miraculously end risk in France. It doesn't all disappear. In fact, France is a very risky place from 26 to 30. Risky in the sense of having a, a bad history, bad reputation, and constrained institutions as a necessary political consequence of those. Now, what about the initial overvaluation? Well, the initial choice of 19, in 1926 and subsequently was actually not intended to, to create um, uh, an overvaluation. They were actually intending, I, I meant to say an undervaluation, they, they were actually intending to get it about right. What happened was, when they went on to the gold standard, interest rates fell dramatically. I'll show you some graphs of this. And so money demand went up, partly as a result of interest rates declining. And that's one of the missing variables I'm going to suggest that you put into your model, because it's going to explain some of that missing deflation. Um, so... The, was this all predictable? Maybe not. Uh, interest rates and go down, income expands, and French money demand is booming. It's not met by levered inside money expansion. Why? Because this macro idea of, of uh, the money multiplier being the result of this mechanical uh, deposit expansion is not right. Banks actually have to satisfy microeconomic problems. And so the French banks are increasing their reserve-to-deposit ratio. They're, why? Well, they're weak. And they're not interested in borrowing, as Doug mentioned, they're not interested in borrowing from the Bank to France for a few reasons. One is it's their competitor. But um, there are also some other things going on. The government ha is withdrawing deposits from those banks. The banks of perception of volatility is greater. In other words, there's a microeconomic story about weak banks. There's a macroeconomic story about a weak central bank and about a weak fiscal institution. And what they're all driving is microeconomic decisions and political decisions that have the necessary consequences of huge gold inflows. As this economy starts to stabilize, money demand goes up and also the constraints that are on the central bank prevent it, as Doug mentioned, prevent it from being able to expand the money supply. The central bank, after 1928, effectively was not allowed to do open market operations or to buy foreign currency. How could it have expanded high-powered money? By lending it to the banks. But the banks were increasing their reserve-to-deposit ratio. The banks weren't expanding. The banks were actually not in the interest, interested in expanding their, their uh, credit growth by borrowing from the central bank. And so this was kind of an automatic process. And I think Doug's account of it is fairly similar. That is, gold flowed in because there was nothing else for the central bank to do because the only thing it could have done to expand the money supply is lend to the banks. And that market was clearing 
at a low level of lending. You could also argue that they, if they had been doing something conscious, they should have been concerned about capital flight because this was a risky environment. So that's a story about, by the way, today in developing countries, countries like Brazil or Colombia, that also are doing things like this, not playing by the rules of the game. Why? Well, because they don't want to expand their whole financial systems when uh, the hard currency is flowing into their countries because what comes in can go out. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the right story for this, but my point is, notice that in today's environment, there's a lot of similarity here, that countries will not play by the so-called rules of the game because of the microeconomics of not playing by them and the politics of not playing by them. The notion that we can, could create a stable gold standard in an imperfect world is, I think, wrong. Because all of these considerations, the politics that created the, uh, the constraints on the central bank and also the concerns about capital flight in weak institutional environments, will necessarily make countries not play by the rules of the game. Again, not just a mistake that somebody made, but a predictable political consequence of a particular institutional history. Okay. And, of course, I'm mentioning some examples from today. Uh, the last one is very interesting, and I want to emphasize this. The coverage ratio. Well, yeah, great. The coverage ratio, by the way, does anybody know a theory that they could point me to for telling me what the right coverage ratio should be for to get credibility as a central bank? Please raise your hand. Should it be 35? We don't have, I haven't ever seen such a theory. So do, does anyone even know if you're a central banker what coverage ratio you should be targeting? So we're going to talk about these coverage ratios as if they're some sort, they're coming from somewhere, they came from legislation. Maybe the Bank of France, even if they had been free, would have wanted to increase their coverage ratio because of the perceived riskiness of their institution. So when I was working a little bit for the central bank in Argentina, you know, they, they didn't have to maintain a dollar-for-dollar dollar, uh, reserve ratio. They could have actually made it go down to 60%. But they knew whenever it fell below 99%, they started to experience capital flight. They, could, they were plotting it on an intraday basis. And so the market set the coverage ratio in Brazil at 99%. As a result of reputational concerns, which turned out, of course, to be well-founded. Okay, so this is going through, what, what was all this bad stuff that happened in France in the early 20s? Um, actually, Milton Friedman wrote a famous article in 1953. It was the, his example of how you know that exchange rate depreciation is not just de uh, destabilizing speculation, because he was saying this terrible depreciation that happened in France in the early 1920s, guess what, was all driven by fundamentals. What were the fundamentals? Fiscal stuff. By the way, the Bank of France committed fraud, which was reported in April 1925, about a hidden support, contrary to French law, for the government's deficits. Just sounding like a, a situation where you might get a law that prohibits a central bank from engaging in open market operations. So you see, these things don't just come from nowhere. They come from a particular institutional political history. Not 
cannot be avoided by clever economic thinking. Okay, and then I have a bunch of slides here. This gives you a sense of that, that depreciation that I'm talking about in the 1920s. Uh, by the way, when the French set the 1928 ratio, they did so in, after discussions with the major central banks. They weren't trying to set their exchange ratio at the wrong place. They got agreement from the British and the American central banks that they were setting it at approximately the right number. To give you an idea of the French recovery, you can see here the debt-to-GDP ratio in France coming down, but, of course, starting from a much higher ratio. So in 1925, the, the French ratio is about 160% of GDP. Uh, they're converging, of course, to the Maastricht 60% because they had rational expectations about the, the Maastricht Treaty. Um, but uh, you can see that the French are making very dramatic adjustments in the 1920s, especially after 1926. You can see this also showing up in deficits. Here's something that why you want to look at uh, interest rates, Doug. Look at what's happening to the long-term interest rates in France during the period 1926 to 1930. They're falling dramatically. Money demand is going way up, and that's a big part of the gold inflows. And I think it's part of the global deflation. Uh, it's part of what is sometimes called the Gibson's paradox, but not all of it. But I would ex ex advise you to add that to your thinking. Okay. Here's another really important point. France is experiencing a boom. Uh, and this is a Tobin's Q in France. And you can see as interest rates are falling and as French growth is being uh, restarted and as the French are, are establishing their lost rep reestablishing their lost reputation, Tobin's Q is skyrocketing. This is from an uh, old paper from Barry. And that's the real boom in the French economy is largely an investment boom related to that Tobin's Q. Uh, this gives you a sense that they, they actually had the real effective exchange rate. This is computed also by Barry. So you can see that there's a flat area there from 28 to 30. It doesn't really look like they're uh, hugely um, wrong in terms of their exchange rate. If they were, you would have expected it to move more quickly than it did toward adjustment, that is, in a downward direction. Okay, so that's my point, um, that all these constraints basically made this happen. But it didn't happen because of stupidity. It happened because of the pri prior institutional history, and that's the cautionary tale. I want to end with one other comment, which is, uh, why didn't deflation caused depression, which is, this is responding to Doug's question at the end, in the late 19th century. So I think, of course, you know, the, the link between deflation and depression, which Irving Fisher talked about um, and many other people since have talked about, why didn't that same link, operating largely through financial channels, I would say, why didn't that happen in the deflation of 1865 to 1879, which was a pretty big deflation? And the answer, which I actually wrote about my dissertation, believe it or not, is that it was an expected deflation. And that you could actually have seen it in various bond yield differentials and other things. So that the, with the exception of the, uh, pr the period in the early 1890s, when there really was a deflationary uh, adverse effect of deflation, a lot of the deflation in the late 19th century was anticipated. So what does that bring us to? This was a an an un largely unanticipated deflationary shock 
coming from things like hard-to-forecast changes in money demand, coming from hard-to-forecast changes in institutions driven by a particular political history. And I think uh, that's really the, the, uh, the important thing for us to take away from this, which is we might not be able to forecast exactly when these kinds of constraints blow up on us, but we can forecast that they will. Thanks. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Second discussant is James Hamilton from UCSD. I uh, like Doug's paper quite a bit and uh, agree with his basic conclusions. So those of you who are hoping I'd get up here and tell you why the paper's all wrong are going to be disappointed. Those of you hoping I would say something other than what Charlie just said are also going to be disappointed. <laughs> Basically, all I'm good for today is just elaborate a little bit on things that Doug and Charlie said and, and uh, uh, offer a little different emphasis maybe on a, a few points. Uh, I find it helpful for some of these questions to just think in terms of an economy where there's only one good that's being produced. For concreteness, I'll call that a potato. And one nice thing about that economy is it's totally clear what you mean by the aggregate price level. It's the price of a potato. So I'll use P for that. You can think of that as a CPI or something. I'll just call it dollars per potato. It's also very clear in an economy like that what we mean by the relative or real price of gold. It's how many potatoes do you have to pay to get uh, one ounce of gold. Uh, call that uh, relative price of gold R. And then, of course, you have the accounting identity that if you have to pay P dollars to get one potato and R potatoes to get one ounce of gold, then you have to pay P times R dollars to get one ounce of gold. The dollar price of gold is, by definition, the product of the aggregate price level and the real price of gold. And what that means is that if we're talking about a gold standard in which the dollars you pay to get an ounce of gold are fixed by the standard, then the product P times R is fixed. And if anything happens to make the relative price of gold R go up, uh, it must also imply that the price level P goes down. And uh, if we thought of the relative price of gold as something that's pretty stable, then we might think of a gold standard as something that's going to help us to achieve price level stability of, of P. On the other hand, if the relative price of gold is very unstable, as it proved to be uh, in these critical years of the Depression, uh, then uh, changes in that relative price can be a factor uh, that could contribute to the instability of the economy, uh, as I believe it, it did. And so in particular, here's one of the figures from Dub's paper. These are uh, measures of the aggregate price level for three of the countries on the gold standard uh, uh, here, uh, the U.S., France, and Britain. And there was a substantial deflation there uh, in the early part of the Depression, uh, unanticipated deflation, which many of us think contributed to the magnitude of the downturn, uh, both because you need high levels of unemployment to bring about that kind of deflation uh, and because it aggravated uh, uh, some of the debt problems. And so if we ask, well, why did the price level decline? You can equally well ask, well, why did the relative price of gold go up? Because they are one and the same question. And the answer that Doug offers to that question, why did the relative price of gold go up, uh, comes from this figure, also taken from Doug's paper, 
we think of the quantity of gold on the horizontal axis, the relative price of gold, which I was calling R, thinking of how many potatoes you need to pay to get an ounce of gold on the vertical axis. Uh, and uh, uh, if you think of that relative price of gold as being consistent with the supply of gold equals the demand for gold, which seems a pretty natural way of, of uh, approaching it, uh, and if there is an increase in the demand for gold uh, with the supply of gold fixed, uh, then the relative price of gold has to go up. And if the dollar price of gold is fixed with the relative price of gold going up, uh, that means deflation. Now, there are a couple of points that, that you can... Uh, oh, oh, and then what Doug does in the paper is to try to quantify the extent to which there was an increase in the demand for gold from France and the U.S. Uh, in terms of a change in this, this coverage ratio and uh, uh, take the magnitude of that imputed shift in gold demand for those countries to calculate the, uh, uh, the magnitude of the change in uh, uh, the aggregate price level that you could calculate from it. Uh, but I wanted to use this diagram of Doug's to make a couple of points. The first is that it's very clear from this picture you don't need any change in the supply of gold for this effect to take place. You can imagine, for example, that the U.S. and France were the only two countries in the world. Let's say they're identical. Let's say they both desire to increase their gold holdings. Well, in the aggregate, of course, they can't both do that. But what do they do? Well, to try to get more gold, you raise your interest rate. That's not going to attract more gold in equilibrium, but it is going to deflate the economy, and you deflate the economy sufficiently to where you move to that new, uh, new point on the diagram. So uh, you don't really need the regressions that, that, that Doug looks at to, to make the point. It's, it's added evidence. You could say, well, there was, the countries weren't all the same. Some gold was going uh, to, uh, uh, more gold was going to the France and the U.S. than others. Uh, but uh, it's not really essential for, for the, the basic point I think Doug is making. And then the second issue that I think this, uh, this figure raises is the one that Charlie went into in, in depth, which is, well, why, what was bringing about that increase in, in demand? Uh, and, and here again, I'm, I'm getting to the, the basic point Charlie talked about. Uh, this is a plot of wholesale prices in those same three countries uh, that we're looking at, except this is three years before uh, Doug's picture. So these are wholesale prices in the U.S., UK and France from 1923 to 1926. Uh, the U.S. Uh, and Britain uh, were on the gold standard there with, with uh, uh, stable price levels. France was not uh, and uh, uh, had uh, quite uh, tremendous inflation. And as, as Charlie was pointing out, that was why they wanted to go back on the gold standard. Uh, this was a very tumultuous time, uh, not trusting fiscal policy, not trusting monetary uh, policy, and the gold standard was seen as a way of, of reestablishing <clears throat> credibility. And France, of course, was not alone in this. So here I've added uh, Belgium had pretty similar experience with their price level. And, of course, also in that decade, the uh, hyperinflation of Germany is very famous, uh, but there were also pretty impressive inflations in uh, Austria, Hungary, Russia, uh, and uh, Poland. And uh, uh, so it, it was a period of chaos, not just for France, but, but World War I was a, a tremendous fiscal burden on, on a lot of these countries. 
Uh, you weren't sure uh, who you trusted. You weren't sure what currency you trusted. And so the gold standard was seen as a, as a, a way of, of reestablishing uh, something <coughs> credible. And, and I think that's the basic story behind this picture, also from Doug's paper, uh, why France and 30 other countries decided to try to go on to, back onto gold uh, during this, uh, this period. Uh, now, uh, I, I think the, the uh, uh, key point to focus on is what happened in 1931. Uh, if, if we'd started to recover from the downturn at the end of 1930, uh, we really wouldn't be talking about this. It would have been just another recession like, like others. Uh, but something happened in 1931 to turn this in, into a, a major event. What, what was it? Um, well, I think some of the financial instability of the 1920s in Europe reappeared in, in 1931. The failure of Austria's biggest bank, the Credit Anstalt, in, in 1931, uh, the starting event of that, but that was followed by, uh, by bank runs uh, in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland. Here's a, a famous picture from uh, Germany, depositors uh, in 1931 uh, wanting their, their money back. Uh, and, and often historically we see a coincidence of a banking crisis and a currency crisis. Uh, you don't trust your marks in that bank and maybe you don't trust marks altogether. Uh, you want to go, uh, go to gold, maybe something, uh, something safe. Uh, well, so here's what was happening in England during 1931. The top uh, panel is the uh, gold reserves held by the Bank of England. Uh, I've got the failure of credit Anstalt there as the first fitter to line. Uh, and then the bottom panel is uh, the discount rate that they were setting. And the immediate uh, consequence of those, those uh, bank runs in, in Central Europe was uh, the Bank of England lowered their discount rate but saw an inflow of gold, uh, a flight to safety, as you, if you will. Uh, but then later on in the summer, uh, people began to uh, have concerns, well, wait a minute, some of these Bank of England assets are, in fact, uh, loans to, uh, to Central Europe, uh, accounts being frozen. And there was a, a, a sudden uh, run on, on England's uh, gold reserves there, uh, the net consequence of which was that Britain decided to uh, uh, notice again the run on gold was continuing despite the increase in, in their uh, uh, interest rate. Uh, Britain decided to go off of uh, gold. Now, here's the United States, uh, the Federal Reserve's gold holdings, again during 1931. Uh, again, we lowered the interest rate. There was an inflow of gold uh, at the same time as lowering that interest rate. Uh, but then, as Britain left gold, there's, people started to have doubts about the United States, and there was a significant uh, drop in U.S. gold holdings, uh, which the U.S. tried to counter by, uh, by raising uh, the discount rate. Uh, you can argue about whether uh, if we just stayed the course uh, with, without raising the interest rate, uh, maybe, maybe people would have given up, and maybe, as Charlie was saying, maybe that coverage ratio was more than, than adequate. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to, how to play that, that uh, game of second-guessing here, uh, but uh, uh, I, I think it is safe to say that that increase in interest rates in the U.S. Uh, was one factor that was uh, uh, aggravating the, uh, uh, the downturn. And uh, uh, one, one, you know, why do you raise interest rates when the economy is just about to uh, go off the cliff? Well, you do it if you're trying to, uh, 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 to prevent an outflow of gold. And uh, the point is that this was a, a basically destabilizing uh, situation. You don't know, is the pound good, as good as gold? They say it is. Well, I'm not sure. Is the dollar as good as gold? They say it is. I'm not sure. France uh, 
once we get past past 1931, uh, it, it's not just the Bank of France uh, acquiring gold. French citizens were also starting to accumulate gold because they weren't so sure that, that their bank wouldn't go back to, uh, to what, they, uh, what had, had been uh, happening before. Uh, so here are some graphs of uh, private discount rates in, in uh, Central Europe. This is from my 1988 paper, uh, where, by the way, I said, my story of the Great Depression begins in Paris, I think is a, is a quote from, from that paper. Uh, uh, but noted that, uh, uh, again, with these, these bank panics in, in Europe in 1931, uh, uh, the initial response is nobody's sure who to trust. Uh, interest rates are going up. It's, it's a combination of doubts about uh, financial institutions and doubts about countries. Uh, and and uh, 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 so those interest rates went up before uh, Britain uh, left gold. Here's the U.S. Uh, uh, Treasury uh, yields. Uh, as, uh, as I was saying, those went up substantially uh, uh, in response to this gold outflow in, in 1931. So the point I'd like to get to is I, I think the key theme Charlie was raising, that the, the 1920s were a very chaotic period. Uh, a lot of distrust of institutions, monetary institutions, fiscal institutions, financial institutions. The reason France wanted to acquire all this gold was, we, was that they said this was really bad stuff. We want to persuade everybody that, that they ought to have, have faith in us. But the question is, if, if you don't trust the government when it wasn't on a gold standard, do you trust it to follow a gold standard? Uh, they say the franc is as good as gold, okay, and I can show up any time with my francs and ask for gold, but if I come to have doubts, uh, that's what I'm going to do. Well, in the case of Britain, you showed up with your uh, pounds that I want gold because uh, I don't think you're going to stay on it. Uh, <coughs> turned out you were right. They, they weren't going to stay on it. In the case of France and the United States, no, you were wrong. They did stay on it, but I think at a great cost. And uh, the final point I wanted to make was just emphasizing that cost. Again, something both Doug and, and, and Charlie pointed to. Here's, here's another graph of the same point that I kind of like uh, from Bernanke and, and uh, uh, James' paper, which uh, looked at, at uh, really all the countries for which they could get that, I think, uh, and, and summarizing the, the basic point from that Eichengreen graph of, that, that Charlie showed. So uh, the top is, is countries that left gold, the gold standard in 1931, uh, oh, we're, we're plotting here the, uh, the average growth of, of industrial production. Uh, their recoveries began more or less right away. The U.S. Uh, didn't leave until 33. Uh, that's when our recovery began. Italy left the year after. Then their recovery began. Belgium the year after that. Uh, and some countries, uh, like poor France, were still stuck on it in, in 1936 and, and still miring uh, down there below. So I think we have some, some pretty clear indication that if, if it's a chaotic world uh, and you don't trust central banks, you don't trust their fiscal uh, situation, that you can't solve that problem with a gold standard. Uh, I think that's what we learned from uh, the 29 to 33 experience. So Charlie said, well, let's not repeat, let's be smarter than those other guys and not make their mistakes. Uh, I hope this is one place where we could be smarter than the other guys and not make their mistakes. And, and in particular, I at least think it would be a disaster for the world today with the kind of doubts we have about fiscal and financial and monetary situation for us to, to, to contemplate going back to a gold standard. Uh, that's what I think is, uh, is a big takeaway from Doug's paper. And as I say, I'm, uh, I, I like his paper quite a bit.
Thank you very much. So if you'd like to comment or ask a question, raise your hand. And um, so Jim Kahn, keep it up until I sort of point at you. So why don't you start with Jim? Oh. Um, I guess a, a, a question and a related comment. I mean, the paper talks about these violations of rules by by the U.S. and France, essentially. I mean, the question is, did, was, did the, this is maybe betrays my ignorance about some of the details of the gold standard, but it seems like was the rest of the world had no choice but to just, you know, sit there and take it, uh, short of going, in other words, short of going off the gold standard, you know, was there was there no comparable response, you know, such as you know lower, uh, lowering their coverage ratio or something like that that they could have d uh, done to defend themselves? Um, more broadly, regarding the sort of you know condemnations of the gold standard, um, I'm not sure if that's the necessarily the right lesson. It seems like the the real problem is having a set of rules without having any enforcement mechanism. And, and, and I think that carries over today with the, with the euro. Uh, you know, a lot of rules were set up, but there was no you know, mechanism to, to enforce the rules. And so then uh, you get something that's maybe worse than, than, um, than you started with. But you, know, the, the, you, know, you can point out the, the flaws of the gold standard, and I wouldn't disagree with those. But you know, you're reminded of the cliche about democracy being, you know, worst, the worst system in the world, other, uh, worst political system other than all the, all the rest. So you really need to, c to compare. You know, we've had discretionary systems. We ended up with a crisis in 2008. You know, we had the great inflation and so forth. So there's, there's, there's flaws in all of these systems. And it seems like the real takeaway that I, for me is, 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 you know, rules without enforcement. Uh, is, is the problem, not just, not, not, not just rules. Do you want to respond? <clears throat> yeah, sure. W when we use this term rules of the game, uh, that was a, a phrase that Keynes came up with to talk about the late 19th century gold standard. So after World War I, countries had conferences, the General Conference 1922, to sort of talk about international monetary arrangements after the war, going back on the gold standard, what have you. But there were no rules. So there were these domestic statutes about cover ratios, which were, once again were uh, one-sided. You couldn't go below them, but you could go as much above them as you wanted. But there's no international agreement uh, on these rules. So it was sort of this rudderless system in some sense, uh, where, the, you know, they didn't, once again, they didn't have this in late 19th century, really, either in terms of formal rules, but they'd talked about things and not really hammered out, you know, what would happen if countries started accumulating a lot of gold. There, wa there was no rule. There's no punishment. Uh, so it was sort of this rudderless system in a sense. Gentlemen can, over here. Can, can I, here? Can I yeah. just say one one brief thing about that? I, I think Jim's point really addresses your 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 point too, Jim. Which is, it's not that um, mechanically, it was the absence of of enforcement powers in some legalistic sense. The point is that the the, the motivation is to use a monetary standard as a tool to solve a whole host of other problems. You know, when Helmut Kohl invented the euro, he his idea, he didn't think that Europe was a, an, an optimal currency area. His idea was it could become an optimal currency area because the monetary standard would make everything else fall into place. When the Argentines adopted their standard, they had, didn't get the fiscal reforms in place ahead of time. They were expecting that the fiscal reforms would be caused by the monetary standard. 
the idea, just as Jim says, to use the monetary standard as the pivot point for all the other reforms to happen. And it never works. So it wasn't just a, that they didn't know to establish enforcement. They couldn't establish enforcement. Gentlemen here, if you could, uh, you and everybody could please state your name and affiliation when you, before you give your comment or question. Uh, hi, my, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. I'm just here in my own account. This is a question for Professor Irwin. Um, what, if anything, was happening to the cover ratio in the United States prior, in the years immediately prior to 1928? And you said a, you've said a couple of times that the rules said that you could never go below, you could always go above and never go below. Well, uh, without an enforcement mechanism, what, why was that the case? Was there ever, were there ever instances, particularly before 1928, where the ratio was greater than one, where, where the U.S. or other countries were monetizing, uh, were exp expanding the monetary base faster than, than the gold supply? Um, <clears throat> I guess in terms of uh, the cover ratios, uh, for the U.S. cover ratio, I, I don't have a picture in my head about what it looked like in the earlier mid-1920s. Um, that was established by law. It uh, wasn't a simple ratio like France because it depended on the class of assets. So it was sort of a linear combination of various things. Um, I think if there was violations, uh, serious ones, such as during a war or what have you, then uh, there would be supplementary legislation or some decree uh, suspending the gold standard, suspending the enforcement of those cover ratios. So they could violate it from below under extreme circumstances. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure. That, that, these are numbers easily, uh, one can easily look up on the internet terms of the cover ratios and what have you. Steve Darlow? Did, did you raise your hand? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, thought so, I thought so. The, the comment was so important to get the microphone. Uh, first of all, I thought that was a wonderful presentation and a wonderful discussion. I, I just had two questions. One uh, concerned pre-war uh, excess gold reserves. In other words, uh, as a being completely ignorant of the relevant economic history, what you did was give a compelling story about the uh, evolution of excess gold reserves in the, as a uh, spark, so to speak, for the Great Depression. The, the question then, at least in my mind, is does one observe similar degrees of change pre-war, and if so, pre-World War I, and if so, why didn't they have comparable effects? And I think this story actually was given by the discussants in terms of thinking about the associated financial crises and bank runs, but it, it wanted to know what your reactions were to that. Uh, the second had to do with the following up both Jim and Charlie's comments. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, one of the interesting features of this discussion is, uh, you know, it has to do with the robustness of policies. In other words, you set in some regime in place, and then you ask how, how is it going to respond to different type of shocks, and that the arguments that both the discussants made, in essence, was that the uh, gold standard simply was not a robust regime because uh, it could be used to solve multiple uh, policy objectives and hence undermine the uh, credibility of the rules or similarly was amenable to uh, political uh, forces that uh, uh, that could uh, could make it break down. So I, I think it, that might be a useful template for linking up uh, uh, the implicit critique in your work or explicit critique with, uh, with work, for example, of Hansen and Sargent. Um, on the pre-war, so uh, there's actually a figure in the paper where I show the pre-war gold holdings. Uh, it's not excess reserves, but uh, since the system seemed to be working fairly well after the 1907, you can see, once again, France after the war was roughly where it was 
before the war, the U.S. had gone way up. Um, so it's that French movement is just completely out of line, even with the pre-war stuff. Um, but I think there, one could look at, so there was a very severe recession in the early 1890s. And I think uh, probably under investigated and maybe there's some, uh, you know, once again, linked to the gold standard. I'm not sure, Argentina went off and you studied that. No, um, you're right. I mean, it's a worldwide recession. It's a worldwide recession. 1893, deflation and, and banking crises and so. And so maybe there was one country, excess reserves during that period might play a story too, I don't know, but um, yeah. Um, Eric Rasmussen. Of related questions. First of all, if France had counterfactually had honest politicians and bankers, uh, would it have been in France's interest to um, to buy foreign exchange and sell gold uh, during this period? And second, um, why didn't the Coase theorem operate? That is, why didn't Britain and other countries basically um, buy the or pay France to do what would help the system? Would it be too much of a free rider problem or, or something else? Well, I guess the question would be what could Britain do to give France to uh, you know, get them to alter their policy? Um, <laughs> perhaps, I guess, territory, uh, yep. Um, I mean, the, the British were very upset with what was going on. They did have consultations and actually France did them a favor uh, because I showed you the foreign exchange holdings and they had, uh, France had been selling pounds for gold. And I think in 1927, 1928, they reached an agreement where France would just hold on to um, uh, the pounds and not continue to sell them. They got the gold through other mechanisms, but they didn't sort of uh, start running down their pound reserves. And then, they, of course, they got burned uh, when the pound was devalued. And in fact, going back to 1931, one reason why the Fed had to jack up interest rates, or one story that's told, is that basically the French said, we were just sort of hit by the, the uh, uh, British. Uh, now we're holding a lot of dollars. Uh, we don't. We want to make sure that uh, you know you're trustworthy, and so you better give us a higher rate of return. Otherwise, we're going to dump our dollars and, and go after your gold. Um, I forget what was your first question. Um, oh yes, uh, was it in France's interest to solve See that that gets to Charlie's point, which I think is a very good and very deep one is that take away that monetary law, take away a lot of the institutional constraints, would they have done things differently? I think the answer is no. Because actually, I'm not sure in, in this version where I, I quote, but the, the French finance minister basically says, oh, and this also gets to another point Charlie raised about capital flight. Um, they said, we actually want these high cover ratios because you know we had this instability in the early 20s, capital was flowing out, now we need this cushion because we could have face a sudden stop. So even if they didn't have those constraints, I think they would have behaved exactly the same way. They wanted the cover, they wanted the cushion, and uh, they also, once again, because of the 1920s experience, there was a huge fear of inflation. And so if the gold was coming in, they didn't want to play by the rules, they didn't want to inflate. And so I think that, that once again, reinforces Charlie's point is that, you know, you can set up a lot of rules and stuff, but if, if people have these uh, sort of deeper preferences, um, they're gonna violate the rules because they want to, you know, target some other outcome. Bob Paul. Over here, right in front of me, it's third row, second row. Okay, thanks. Oh, my comments on figure one, which I think everybody has burned into their retinas now. Um, and I, I think figure one is really, misses an important aspect of gold economics, which is that gold is an asset. Uh, and as an asset, its demand depends on its rate of return. Um, so if there's an increase in demand for gold, 
that has to be result in a reduction in its uh, expected return in order to clear the market. Uh, and that requires a lower rate of increase in its purchasing power, and that means a rising price level. So, uh, now, so if if the price is if the price level is completely flexible, then you get a Dornbusch type equilibrium, and that is that there's an immediate increase uh, in the purchasing power of gold, which means an immediate uh, decline in the price level. So that's your deflation, but it's immediate. And then from then on, uh, you get overshooting, as in Dornbusch, and then uh, the uh, price level rises from that point on. So, so the, the association of an increase in, in gold demand with deflation <coughs> doesn't follow that basic rule. Okay, so now the other point, re closely related point, is that uh, the leading macroeconomic scholar of the, of the uh, uh, macroeconomics of, of the Great Depression is Goyte Egerton, whose name didn't come up at all in this discussion. Um, and, and his point is just that sticky prices are the thing that reverse, reverses uh, what would otherwise be this Dornbusch type behavior, overshooting behavior, uh, and that's what kills the economy. It's the combination of sticky prices uh, which then decline gradually and cause expected deflation that uh, results in high real interest rates and low economic activity. That's the heart of the Eggertson theory. Now that was anticipated in a well-known paper by DeLong and Summers, but Eggertson is the one who's really sort of figured it out and, and, and put it into a model and made the whole model work. But I, I think it's very, very important not to treat gold as a commodity, but rather as an investment. Uh, and that causes a focus on the rate of return, which is what makes all this analysis work. On the second point, uh, certainly that people have identified that as being a difference between uh, the interwar gold standard and the uh, pre-war gold standard, is the view that there weren't as many sticky prices, prices were more flexible in the late 19th century than they were after the rise of unions and what have you. So that could, the institutional difference could account for the difference in the functioning of the gold standard across those two regimes. You're assuming it's temporary, Bob? Oh, a, a permanent change in the in the the number of ounces of gold I want to keep in a vault. Why does the number of potatoes per ounce of gold have a trajectory from here if it's a permanent change? The the rate of return I'm giving is zero return on. Uh, gold is is costlessly storable, so. Uh, hmm? No, because of the store of value. So you tell the story with the simplest equilibrium is zero real return on gold, and I'm permanently putting more into vaults. So my return was zero before, my return is zero now, but the relative price has gone up because I'm. It's a service, yeah. The second thing is there's an endogeneity of the rate of interest with respect to gold. Now, I didn't figure out which way that goes, but it might, I mean, if gold can change the rate of interest in a sticky price world, then uh, that may make your thing truer or less true. I don't know. 
<laughs> Any other questions, comments? Yeah. Alan? Uh, I take away from Doug's paper, <laughs> Alan Reynolds, Cato Institute, less of a criticism of the gold standard than a criticism of the cover and of the new, uh, uh, trying to combine a gold standard with unlimited discretion of central banks. Central banks mm -hmm. make pretty dumb mistakes, notably the Federal Reserve. Um, the gold cover, uh, for example, isn't really compatible with either one. Con uh, gold standard is convertibility. Your currency can be converted. I had a silver standard when I was in college. I could take my silver certificate in and get a silver dollar for it. We, we still had remnants of something of that. Uh, but the cover, if there's, a, if there's a run on the banks and people want currency and you have a 35% gold requirement on notes, that's not that's stupid under any system. I think the cover is a problem, and I raised the same question I think Jim did. Why couldn't they lower the cover? And it, that's just an ideological hang-up. Uh, secondly, on the central banking thing, uh, the U.S. was also raising the discount in 29 when you start to see those price discount rate, when you start to see those commodity prices fall, which are called wholesale prices. Uh, so did England. The, the Bank of England discount rate was 6.5% in October 29. <coughs> Bank of France was 3, 3.5%. Um, this is discretionary central banking. It's not, uh, not appropriate policy. And I just want to say a third thing about capital flight and about France. Um, the Poincaré miracle followed uh, French. This is pretty much what Calamaris is saying, but a little more. Uh, the, the French had a quantity rule in place in the central banking. They promised, you know, scouts honor, we're, we'll only increase the note issue at a certain percentage, and they simply didn't do that, and that was the fraud we were talking about. They, they, they monetized a lot of government debt. <coughs> we don't do that in this country. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess we do. I'll call it quantitative easing now. I, I, I'm forgetful. Um, but the interesting thing I, to me, uh, the most interesting thing about the Poincaré miracle was one, it was an example of a fiscal contraction that was expansionary. The deficit went way down. The economy went way up. The stock market, by the way, boomed more than ours did. And they, and, uh, uh, they took a piece of advice from Andrew Mellon. The Poincaré uh, cut the top tax rate from 60 to 30 percent. I just thought I'd throw that in. Mm -hmm. But his, his motive for that was to attract a repatriate capital. And it did that to some extent. Well, I certainly agree there's tons of discretion in the system. Um, so if, and it, uh, that was true in the late 19th century as well. So the, the idea that we've had a gold standard that is really fixed, sort of one-to-one -one Argentina, um, a lot of discretion in the past, and uh, so I absolutely agree with that point. If I can exercise the chairman's prerogative, I think it's impossible to design any system in which there's not the possibility of huge discretion by the central government, because unless you want to advocate for complete and total anarchy, I, I don't think even you, Alan, want total anarchy. If there's some government, then there has to be some taxation or collection of revenue somehow and some expenditure, which means the government has to take a stand on the means of payment for those revenues and those expenditures. Is it potatoes? Is it gold coins? Is it fiat money? Whatever it is. But once it's taken a stand, it's almost certainly then defined the base money, if you will, for the economy. Almost every other kind of money, whether it's private note issue or anything else, is going to be based on whatever the government decreed is legal tender for paying your taxes. And therefore, the government always has the power to monkey around with whatever system it 
decreed, and when it's tempted to do so, the governments are going to do so. When are they going to be tempted to do so? Maybe when there's a lot of other big governments. So maybe you want to say the way to have a better monetary system is have a smaller rest of the government. But I sort of agree with the general point over here. It's impossible to get away from having the government monkey around with a monetary system. Well, some of them are, but there are plenty of blunders under the gold standards, too. Yeah. I mean, the, I think the issue is a blunder from the standpoint of an economist is, oh, we're so smart, we wouldn't have done it. But a blunder from the standpoint of a political scientist is, well, it's a predictable consequence of an equilibrium. Of the way people be, of right people. When you're talking about the French situation, that's why I yeah. sort of went into that. But what about our situation? Don't you think the Fed is a political? I'm going back to, to let's stick with the era, not now. Right. Okay. At the time, uh, look, uh, banks are failing right and left. The Fed is very tight with the discount window. They're not engaging in open market operations. They could, and they were doing things that just make no sense. And in, right. and in that, that 29, they were apparently trying to get the stock market down. For heaven's sakes! By, by the way, I no, I agree with you. And Jeff, yes, that's, you, that's there's always point. going to be uh, monetary authorities can be tempered, tinkered with but we can put some limits on them, we can put some rules in place, and they should be better than the French rule, quantity rule, which, by the way, they violated. But so then we should look at the evidence on whether economies under central, Fed-like central banks have behaved better or worse than economies with things like the classical gold standard. I'm prepared to do that. Okay, so let's say that we're economists and we throw out focusing on the average rate of inflation because as economists, we know that people don't eat the inflation rate. People eat stuff. Okay, so we don't care what the average inflation rate is. So we look only at the behavior of real output, the mean growth rate of real output and the variability of real output. The mean growth rate of real output has been higher since 1947 than it was 18, roughly 1879 to 1914. Not by much, not by even statistically significant, but it's been slightly higher under the Fed, <coughs> and the variability of real output has been lower. So if we focus And what? Well, since, no, post-war. No, I agree. If you, include, if you include the Great Depression, this one, the current period, I'm, in, I'm including the current period, too. I'm including the current period, too. And 81 and 82. So you can't, you can't easily say one is obviously better than the other. To the, uh, ex, to, the okay. preci, to the precision of our data, we clearly, it's, it's, it's a tie. There, there but were more frequent recession, more, more business cycles more frequent. But they weren't as long and protracted as as what we had in eighty one, eighty two. That mess, uh, eighty, eighty one, eighty two. And then robust, very robust growth coming out of it. The average growth rate has been higher. Where did that go? That, That's but, historically interesting now. Yeah. We'll continue this over drinks. Yeah, give me a couple <laughs> more years and we'll average the growth rates and see. How All right, la la last comment from anyone who hasn't had a chance to weigh in, Bob. gold standard would have worked beautifully uh, as a, as a laissez-faire mechanism if only uh, governments hadn't uh, mismanagement, uh, mismanaged it or whatever. The, the whole workings of the gold standard that you're discussing uh, uh, are not automatic. They're fundamentally managed. I mean, if, there's, if, if, uh, if it's necessary for the money stock to... Uh, uh, to respond to gold inflows, uh, you know, via some fixed cover ratio or whatever, there's no way that an automatic gold standard would uh, 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 would.
would do that, as far as I can tell. So I, I mean, to, to think about this as, as government uh, uh, messing up what would have been a beautiful um, economic mechanism just doesn't make sense to me. Now, this, this uh, goes to the issue of whether the Austrians, for instance, thought that uh, a gold standard was the right uh, kind of libertarian monetary system. I, I think there was a lot of debate even among Austrians about that, if I if I'm not mistaken, but it's that to, to see the gold standard as something that works by itself as opposed to being managed by a government. And I don't mean just that in fact it was managed and mismanaged by governments. I mean that it, as I understand it, fundamentally must be managed by a, a bank. All right, before we get into Austrian economics, we should adjourn for <laughs> drinks. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>